Chapter Thirteen of Diana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Diana by Susan Warner. Chapter Thirteen, from the Post Office. Mrs. Starling's room was like her, for use and not for show, with some points of pride and a general air of humble thrift. A patchwork quilt on the bed, curtains and valance of chintz, a rag carpet covering only part of the floor, the rest scrubbed clean. Rush-bottomed chairs, and with those a secretary bureau of old mahogany, a dressing-glass in a dark carved frame, and a large oaken press. There were corner cupboards, a table holding work and work-basket, a spinning-wheel in a corner, a little iron stove, but no fire. Mrs. Starling lay down on her bed, simply because she was not able to sit up any longer. But she was scarcely less than busy, in truth, than she had been downstairs. Her eyes roamed restlessly from the door to the window, though with never a thought of the sweet September sunlight on the brilliant blue sky. Diana's queer this morning, she mused. Yes, she was queer. What made her so mum? She was not like herself, sailing round with her head in the clouds. And a little bit blue, too, what Diana never is, but she was today. What's up? I've been lying here long enough for plenty of things to happen, and she's had the house to herself. Knowlton has been here. She owned that. Well, either he has been here too often, or not often enough. I'll find out which. She's thinking about him. Then that coffee. Was it coffee last night? I could have sworn to it. Just the smell of fresh steaming coffee. I didn't dream it. She wasn't surprised either. She had nothing to say about it. She would have laughed at it once. And the ashes in the chimney. There's been a sight o' wood burned there, and just burned too. They lay light and haven't been swept up. There's mischief, but Diana shall never go off with that young feller. Never, never. Maybe she won't have Will Flandin, but she shan't have him. Mrs. Starling lay thinking and staring out of her window, till she felt she could go downstairs again, and then she watched. But Diana had put every possible tell-tale circumstance out of the way. The very ashes were no longer where her mother could speculate upon them. Pies and cakes showed no more suspiciously cut halves or quarters. She had even been out to the barn, and found that Josiah, for reasons of his own, was making the door latch and hinges firm and fast. It was no time now to tell her mother her secret. Her heart was too sore to brave the rasping speech she would be certain to provoke. And with a widely different feeling, it was too rich in its prize to drag the treasure forth before scornful eyes. For this was part of Diana's experience, she found, and the feeling grew, the feeling of being rich in her secret possession, rich as she had never been before, perhaps the richer for the secrecy. It was all hers, this beautiful, wonderful love that had come to her, this share in another person's heart and life, her own wholly. No one might intermeddle with her joy. She treasured it and gloated over it in the depths of her glad consciousness. And so, as the days went by, there was no change that her mother could see in the sweet lines of her daughter's face. Nothing less sweet than usual, nothing less bright and free. If the eyes had a deeper depth at times, it was not for Mrs. Starling to penetrate. And if the childlike play of the mouth had a curve of beauty that had never until then belonged to it, the archetype of such a sign did not lie in Mrs. Starling's nature. Yet once or twice a jealous movement of suspicion did rise in her. Only because Diana seemed so happy. 
She reasoned with herself immediately that Evan's absence could never have such an effect, if her fears were true, and that the happiness must therefore be referred to some purely innocent cause. Nevertheless, Mrs. Starling watched, for she was pretty sure that the young soldier had pushed his advances while he had been in Pleasant Valley, and he might push them still, though there no longer. She would guard what could be guarded. She watched both Diana and other people, and kept an especial eye upon all that came from the post-office. Evan had gone to a distant frontier post. The journey would take some time, and it would be several days more still, in the natural course of things, before Diana could have a letter. Diana reasoned out all that, and was not anxious. For the present, the pleasure of expecting was enough. A letter from him. It was a fairylandish, weird, wonderful pleasure to come to her. She took to studying the newspaper, and, covertly, the map. From the map she gained a little knowledge, but the columns of the paper were barren of all allusion to the matter which was her world, and Evan's. Newspapers are very partial sometimes. She was afraid to let her mother see how eagerly she scanned them. The map and Diana had secret and more satisfactory consultations. Measuring the probable route of Evan's journey by the scale of miles, calculating the rate of progress by different modes of travel, counting the nights and places where he might spend them, she reckoned up over and over again the days that were probably necessary to enable him to reach his post. Then she allowed margins for what she did not know, and accounted for the blanks she could not fill up, and reasoned with herself about the engrossments which might on his first arrival hinder Evan from writing, for a few hours or a night. So at last she had constructed a scheme by which she proved to herself the earliest day at which it would do to look for a letter, and the latest to which a letter might reasonably be delayed. Women do such things. How many men are worthy of it? That farthest limit was reached, and no letter yet. About that time, one morning the family at Elmfield were gathered at breakfast. It was not exactly like any other breakfast table in Pleasant Valley for a certain drift from the great waves of the world had reached it, whereas the others were clean from any such contact. The first and the third generation were represented at the table. The second was wanting. The old gentleman, the head of the family, was surrounded by only his granddaughters. Now old Mr. Bowdoin was as simple and plain-hearted a man as all his country neighbors, if somewhat richer than most of them. He had wrought at the same labor, and grown up with the same associations. He was not more respectable than respected, generous, honest, and kindly. But the young ladies, his grandchildren, Evan's sisters, were different. They came to spend the summer with him, and they brought fancies and notions from their faraway city life, which made a somewhat incongruous mixture with the elemental simplicity of their grandfather's house. All this appeared now. The old farmer's plain, strong features, his homespun dress and his bowl of milk, were at one end of the table, where he presided heartily over the fried ham and eggs. Look where you would beside, and you saw ruffled chintzes and little fly-away breakfast caps, and fingers with jewels on them. Miss Euphemia had her tresses of long hair unbound and unbraided, hanging down her back in a style that to her grandfather savored of barbarism. He could not be made to understand that it was a token of the highest elegance. For these ladies there was some attempt at elaborate and dainty cookery, signified by sweetbreads and a puffed omelette, and Mrs. Reverdy presided over a coffee-pot that was the wonder of the Elmfield household, and even a little matter of pride to the old squire himself. 
though he covered it with laughing at her mimic fires and doubtful steam-engines. Gertrude Masters was still at Elmfield, the only one left of a tribe of visitors who had made the old place gay through the summer. "'I have had an invitation,' said Mrs. Reverdy, as she sent her grandfather his cup of coffee. And she laughed. I wish I could give the impression of this little laugh of hers, which, in company, was the attendant of most of her speeches. A little gracious laugh, with a funny air, as if she were condescending, either to her subject or herself, and amused at it. "'What is it, Vive? What invitation?' inquired her sister." while Gertrude tossed her massive tresses from her neck, and looked as if nothing at Pleasant Valley concerned her. "'An invitation to the sewing society,' said Mrs. Reverdy. "'We are all asked.' And the laugh grew very amused indeed. "'What do they do?' inquired Gertrude absently. "'Oh, they bring their knitting at two or three o'clock, and have a good time to tell all the news till five or six, and then they have supper, and then they put up their knitting and go home.' "'What news can they have to tell at Pleasant Valley?' "'Whose hay is in first, and whose orchard will yield the most cider?' said Euphemia. "'Yes, and how all their children are, and how many eggs go in a pudding.' "'I don't believe they make pudding with eggs very often,' said the other sister again. "'Their puddings are more like hasty puddings, I fancy.' "'Some of em make pretty good things,' said old Mr. Bowdoin. "'Things you can't beat, Femi. "'There's Mrs. Mansfield. She's a capital housekeeper. "'And Mrs. Starling. She can cook.' "'What do they expect you to do at the sewing-meeting, Vive?' "'Show myself, I suppose,' said Mrs. Reverdy. "'Well, I guess I'd go,' said her grandfather, looking at her. "'It would be as good a thing as you could do.' "'Go, Grandpa! Oh, how ridiculous!' exclaimed Mrs. Reverdy, with her pretty face all wrinkled up with amusement. "'Go, yes, why not?' "'I don't know how to knit, and I shouldn't know how to talk orchards and puddings.' "'I think you had better go.' "'It is not a knitting society, as I understand it, "'and I am sure you can be useful.' "'Useful!' echoed Mrs. Reverdy. "'It's the last thing I know how to be. "'And I don't belong to the society, Grandpa.' "'I shouldn't like them to think that,' said the old gentleman. "'You belong to me, and I belong to them, my dear.' "'Isn't it dreadful?' said Mrs. Reverdy, in a low aside. "'Now he's got this in his head. "'Whatever am I going to do?' "'Suppose I invite them all to Elmfield. "'How would you like that, sir?' she added aloud. "'Yes, my dear, yes,' said the old gentleman, pushing back his chair, for the cup of coffee was the last part of his breakfast. "'It would be well done, and I should be glad of it. Ask em all.' "'You are in for it now, Vive,' said Gertrude, when the ladies were left. "'How will you manage?' "'Oh, I'll give them a grand entertainment, and send them away delighted,' said Mrs. Reverdy. "'You see, Grandpa wishes it, and I think it'll be fun.' "'Do you suppose Evan really paid attentions to that pretty girl we saw at the blackberrying? "'I don't know,' Mrs. Reverdy answered. "'He told me nothing about it. "'I should think Evan was crazy to do it. "'But men do crazy things. "'However, I don't believe it of him, Gertie. "'What nonsense!' "'I can find out if she comes,' said Miss Masters. "'You'll ask her, Genevieve.' "'So it fell out that an invitation to hold the next meeting of the sewing society at Elmfield "'was sent to the ladies accustomed to be at such meetings, "'and a great stir of expectation in consequence went through all Pleasant Valley. "'For Elmfield, whether they acknowledged it or not, was at the top of their social tree. "'The invitation came in due course to Mrs. Starling's house. "'It came not alone. "'Josiah brought it one evening on his return from the corners, "'where the store and the post-office were.' and Mrs. Reverdy's messenger had fallen in with him, and entrusted to him the note for Mrs. Starling. 
He handed it out now, and with it a letter of more bulk and pretensions, having a double stamp and an unknown postmark. Mrs. Starling received both and Josiah's explanations in silence, for her mind was very busy. Curious as she was to know upon what subject Mrs. Reverdy could possibly have written to her, she lingered yet with her eyes upon this other letter. It was directed to Miss D. Starling. "'That's a man's hand,' said Mrs. Starling to herself. "'He's had the assurance to go and write to her, I do believe.' She stood looking at it, doubtful, suspicious, uneasy, then turned into the dairy for fear Diana might surprise her, while she opened Mrs. Reverdy's note. She had a vague idea that both epistles might relate to the same subject. But this one was innocent enough, at least. Hiding the large letter in her bosom, she came back and gave the invitation to Diana, whose foot she had heard. "'At Elmfield! What an odd thing! Will you go, mother?' "'I always go, don't I? What's the reason I shouldn't go now?' "'I didn't know whether you would like to go there.' "'What if I don't? No, I don't particularly care about going to Elmfield. They're a kind of stuck-up folks. But I'll go to let em see that I ain't.' There was silence for a little. Then Mrs. Starling broke it by inquiring if Diana had finished her chintz gown. Diana had. "'I'd wear it if I was you.' "'Why, mother? Let em see that other folks can dress as well as them.' "'Oh, mother, my dresses are nothing alongside of theirs.' "'What's the reason they ain't?' inquired Mrs. Starling, looking incredulous. "'Their things are beautiful, mother, more costly a great deal, and fashionable. We can't make things so in Pleasant Valley. We don't know how.' "'I don't see any sense in that,' rejoined Mrs. Starling. "'One fashion's as good as another.' Anyhow, there's better-looking folks in Pleasant Valley than ever called themselves Bowdoin, or Knowlton either. So be as smart as you can, Diana. I guess you needn't be ashamed of yourself. Diana thought of nothing less. Indeed, she thought little about her appearance. While she was putting on her bright chintz dress, there was perhaps a movement of desire that she might seem pleasant in the eyes of Evan's people, something that he need not be ashamed of but her heart was too full of richer thoughts to have much room for such as these. For Evan had chosen her, Evan loved her, the secret bond between them nothing on earth could undo, and any day now that first letter of his might arrive, which her eyes were bright only to think of looking upon. Poor Diana! That letter was jammed up within the bones of Mrs. Starling's stays. End of chapter 13